Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran, a ministry of Worship Generation Church in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. And we're still focused on Hezekiah and the events after that great uh, apex of events. In those days, the days of that victory that the Lord provided, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned, Hezekiah, his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I've walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. What an incredible scene and defining moment in just the human experience for this great king. And then we read on a little bit more because it just adds a little bit more to our story in verse 4. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle of the court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, of our father, your father, I've heard your prayer and I've seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up into the house of the Lord and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So those last few verses give us a little more background to it because as Hezekiah is crying out for his life like I've watched so many people do in 35 years of being a pastor, as I've even done in my own life on more than one occasion when I felt that death was very near and have been delivered thus far in my journey to be here tonight. And as maybe some of you, many of you, can look back on your life and you know for sure there's a time you cried out for your life to be spared and God spared your life. The older you get, the more likely you'll have that kind of an experience, whether it's a random event or an illness or you're waiting for a doctor's report for a few days and you had to wrestle with the thought process like, what if, you know, this prognosis is correct and I do have cancer or something like that. And so, like so many human beings with 8 billion people on the planet in a universe with trillions of galaxies in time, space, and matter, Hezekiah when death comes, is in the same place all of us are, where he's grappling with it, thinking about it, and he's begging for his life. And, which is not nearly always the case, or even, might even be more rarely the case, God grants that request, which is interesting. But it's noteworthy that God grants the request to extend his life 15 years, and how many human beings ever have the Lord tell them, I'm going to give you 15 more years? That's pretty amazing and unique in of itself. It stands alone. In fact, I don't really know of anything similar in the Bible to that story, and in my human experience, I've never quite heard of something quite like that. But then, in his case, we see there's a sovereign purpose in it, too, because he has a personal prayer, but God says, I will deliver you for this city from the king of Assyria in future events and whatnot. And he says, and I will defend it for the sake of my servant David. So listen, Hezekiah's answered prayer is just the good fortune that God's sovereignty has a plan for him to live longer because God's going to protect the city through this great king for another 15 years under Hezekiah. 
And it's not necessarily because Hezekiah was the, the great king or he's done something super. God's sovereignty says, I'm going to defend the city because it's my city. And I'm going to defend it for the sake of my servant David, which really has nothing to do with Hezekiah, right? Like David, the servant of the Lord, is 200 years before this. And God says, here, I'm going to spare the city because of, and your life for 15 years, because of David. Still, though, Hezekiah made good decisions in his life, and he was affiliated with David by the Holy Spirit, that he do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, like his father, David, from whom he's a descendant, the 13th king in the line of Judah, coming from David. And so this is our background to the story. And as we come to our topic, it's so hard to ignore this phrase that jumps out right away. In those days, Hezekiah, verse 1, was sick, and particularly these two words, and near death. You know, we talk about a near-death experience, right? Like a near-death experience. Now, sometimes we have near-death experiences that we know we were near death. But sometimes in our youth, we don't realize how close we were to death in a near-death experience. Well, my brother's house was robbed at gunpoint when I was 18, The guys came in, and a guy pointed a gun in my face and made me get down on the ground and put a gun to the back of my head. Now, at that time in my life, I felt pretty fearless. And in that moment, I never never really thought this person was going to shoot me. They're just robbing all the weed my my brother had in the house. My brother grew weed. He had about $100,000 worth of cannabis in the house in October. And there were criminals, and they came to steal from other criminals because it was all illegal back then. I never really thought the guy was going to shoot me. But you know, when I'm older now and I reflect on that event, I'm like, I should have been really scared. When someone points a gun at your head to your face and tells you to get on the ground, puts it back of your head, that's a near-death experience. Really? You know, like, because they always say if someone pulls out a gun, that's the person that would use a gun. You don't ever pull out a gun for fun. When someone pulls out a gun, that's a serious situation. I didn't realize it was a near-death. So maybe you've had something like that. Or maybe you've been in the car and you just, that little moment where you swerved and you just missed this thing. When my wife and I hit the deer outside of um, Flagstaff about five years ago, just a matter of inches, we would have both been dead. It was a horrible event. Did $6,000 damage to the car. I still have never really recovered from the psyche of the event and that deer flying over our car. It was horrible. We were so close. And I was so emotionally distraught four days later when I got to Florida and did the insurance report. I was speaking with the lady on the phone from AAA, and I started crying. I broke down emotionally. I actually couldn't even talk. I was in our daughter's Hannah's house, and Jennifer's my witness. I was so emotional over this whole experience. It was, and I felt so bad for the, the deer, everything, the people, and what I saw in the rearview mirror. It was, it was just horrible. And the lady said, listen, I want to tell you something. We get calls all the time where people are killed by hitting a deer or, or an animal on the road. You know, they go through the car windshields. They kill people. You're very lucky you're alive. It was a near-death experience. In a car, being stupid in my youth, and of course, quite a few in my surfing experiences, which you've already heard those stories, so I'll spare you them, but near-death experiences. So just pause for a minute and maybe think right now if you can recall in your life a near-death experience or maybe more than one. Because I'm quite certain for all the ones you can remember, probably you can count on your hands, there's ones you don't remember where the Lord just intervened and protected you from something very serious. Maybe... You know, the brown recluse spider that was on your leg. You didn't even know it was a brown recluse. And you flicked it off. And you didn't even know it was a brown recluse. The thing kills you. You know, it can kill you like that. Like, we just don't know. But we do know this. We are always one moment away from death. And with 
8 billion people on this planet, one thing we have in common is we're all going to die and step into eternity. And before we get there, we might have near-death experiences, and then we'll have a near-death experience that becomes death. And we do transcend dimensions, and we step into eternity. So it's a very serious text right away. It's like he was sick. They just survived the whole thing with Sennacherib, and he's near death. And when he's told, so when you're near death, you might suspect that you're going to die, right? Like, I mean, if you're very sick, you might think, well, this could be a sickness leading to death. And when faced with the reality that we're going to die, there's this, this phrase. So maybe you think, like, maybe you think it's this and maybe you're not sure. But then when the prophet shows up and you're thinking, you hope he's going to say, hey, thus says the Lord, you're healed. You're going to live 30 years. It's all good stuff in the future. When you see the prophet Isaiah walk through the front door, you're hoping it's something like that. But you never know what the prophets, because they say what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. They say what the Lord's told them to say. And Isaiah looked at him and said, set your house in order. You shall die and not live. And I'll tell you what, when Isaiah shows up at your house and says you're going to die and not live, that's what it means. You're going to die and not live. Which brings us to another element of near death that really gets my attention here. It says that he turned his face toward the wall. Now, that, that might mean something to you. It might not mean anything to you. But like... When you're a child, you might be disciplined, and you'd have to put your, you know, you're in the corner. I was out of control, and I remember, like, more than once, I'd have to face the wall. Like, just, you know, like, like that. Like, face the wall. Like, slow the mind down. Think about what you're doing. Self-reflection at six, seven, eight years of age. But to face the wall. You know, a wall always looks like a dead end. For me, personally, this phrase that he turned and faced the wall, like, like, does he, he, can't, he can't look at Isaiah. Like, Isaiah says, you're going to die. And so, like, when you hear that news, like, when the doctor says that, maybe there's other people in the room, you don't want to look at your loved ones. You're not even sure you want to look at the doctor. I mean, who knows? I've never said anyone, I've never been in the situation where someone said that to me personally. But maybe even being told you're going to die is such an embarrassing moment because death is the result of sin in the human race. And we feel helpless when we're sick and dying. Maybe you just can't look at anyone and you just turn and you face the wall. I, that's part of it. But as many of you know, when I was in the room, when Jeremy Camp's first wife, the famous singer, Melissa Henning Camp, went to be home with the Lord, she faced the wall. That wall's not a dead end. But when, you, when you're told you're going to die, it's just a wall. But that wall doesn't stay a wall because sooner or later that wall opens up to eternity and you see eternity and you're transcending dimensions. So the wall might be time, space, and matter. It's matter. But that wall will give way, kind of like the Chronicles of Narnia movies. In the Chronicles of Narnia, whether it's the old BBC ones or the newer ones from 10 years ago, they're minding their own business, Lucy and Peter and them. And then, and then suddenly the next dimension opens up. And they're on the train and now they're in Narnia. It just, it's like a wall that opens up to another dimension. It's what it's like. And when Melissa Henningkamp went to be with the Lord, and I was in that room, I'll always remember how it played out. Because I'd been up all night with Jeremy, and she was dying. Her vital organs were shutting down. And it was very emotional. It was a long night. We're all exhausted. There was about 20 Bible college students in the lobby of the hospital. It was down in San Diego. And everyone loved Jeremy. He'd been a Bible college student the year before. And... um, 
I went to get lunch at about noon. So we've been up all night, and then this is the day she's going to pass. And I went to go get lunch near the hospital about noon, and I, I was eating lunch, and I thought, I'm going to go back in that room. I'm allowed to be in the room, and I'm about to watch someone who loves Jesus. I, I knew Melissa Anning quite well. I'd pray for her healing. I'd, I'd been in places where no one else would go except Jeremy and a few people that were in that inner circle with his wife. I'd been at her wedding day. I'd be at her funeral just a few weeks later with my wife, Jennifer. But I, I thought, you know, she's going to step into eternity, and I'm going to be there. And I was actually kind of excited about it because I knew she was going to glory. So I was sitting here, and the wall was to my left. Melissa was there. Her mom was singing, when I get to heaven, I'm going to walk with Jesus. She was doing the hand, hand signs like you do in children's ministry. And her eyes were closed. She's about 80 pounds. And her vital organs were shutting down. She's hooked up to all this stuff. And when her mom was singing, I'm going to get to heaven, I'm going to walk with Jesus, her eyes opened up, and she looked right to my left at the wall. This wall, my left. And she started to go like this to get all the cords off of her. And so the nurse comes running in. Jeremy wasn't in the room. Jeremy came running. He's like, what's going on? What's going on? I was like, I was like, oh, oh. You know, I, like, I was in the moment. Her mom was Jeremy and a, and a nurse, and it was, it was an incredible moment. Then she, they, they calm her down, and her eyes are open, and she's looking over my left shoulder for the next five to ten minutes. And now Jeremy's singing, and they're singing to her. And I'm telling you, she jumped out of that bed. She jumped out of her deathbed. She jumped out of that bed and hopped right out of the bed to my left. And the whole time, looking at the left wall, stage left. And she jumped out of that bed, and she was moving she, I, was like, I was like, Jesus is here. Like, it's kind of like when Jesus struck down Saul on the road to Damascus. He saw it, he heard it, but the others didn't. Like, this is holy ground, this is a holy moment. Jesus is in this room right now. That's what I was thinking. And he's coming for her, and he's right over my left shoulder. I can't see him, because it's not my day, but it's her day. And she's transcending dimensions right now. And she hopped out of that bed, stood right next to Jeremy, and he said, what's going on? He goes, and she said... I am healed. And then she collapsed. And that was it. She went to be with the Lord. Right there. Right in front of me. Like right here. We're going to do a dedication when the service is done. For Mark Coke. Like is, I was that close. And I'm telling you, it was, it, my faith grew and it was the wall. See, for us, it's just a wall. But for her, the king had come. And the king came where that wall was. He opened it up like Narnia. There it is. Jesus came for her, the good shepherd. She was near death, and she passed dimensions right in front of my eyes, jumped out of a coma, out of a deathbed, and told her husband, the husband of her youth, she had married five months before I was at the wedding. She said, I am healed. It's the last thing she said in time, space, and matter. And I heard it, and I was there. Now, he looked at the wall. He's near death. Maybe he thinks he might be near death, but it's not going well. And then the prophet shows up and tells him, in fact, you are near death. Set your house in order. You're going to die. And he faces the wall. And let me say tonight, over this entire message, someday, every one of us in this room will face the wall of death, where we must stare down death. And I intend to, and I know you intend to, and it's a serious message, but isn't life serious, and isn't eternity more serious? 
I intend to stare at that wall with all the faith and all the hope I've ever had in Jesus Christ. And I know he's coming for me. And I know he's coming for you because he's the good shepherd. And he's coming for a sheep that he loves. And he lays down his life for the sheep. And he's coming. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's, that wall that is time, space, and matter and just three-dimensional will become multi-dimensional when the king comes for you and me, the sons and daughters of the king in our faith. And whether we have faith or not, he's coming. That wall opens up for everybody. Or as Voltaire, the great Antichrist, said of his life, I now must face him whom I've denied my entire life. The, the, wall, the wall's there, and it opens up. So with that in mind, let's think about three things in this text that we see coming forth from this amazing story. The first thing is the temporal element of dying, because that's what we're talking about tonight. The Lord said to him, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. So this phrase, set your house in order, when I taught this Tuesday, I really focused on the spiritual, about just that you're right with the Lord, and we'll get to that in a moment. But really in the context of set your house in order, it it deals with really like the practical things. In fact, it's temporal, it's about others, it's physical, It's this dimension, and it's that which is left behind. So when we talk about setting your house in order, it's it's temporal, it's physical, it's time, space, and matter, it's the things that are left behind, and it's focusing on others. So the first point tonight is focusing on others. I'm going on a trip next week. I'm going to Florida next week after service. I'm going back to see the grandkids between books and just going to go see the family and my kids as well and looking forward to it. When I go on a trip, maybe the same way, when I go on a trip, I like everything in order before I go on a trip. How many of you can relate to this? Raise your hand. Like you go on a trip, do you put everything in order? Like, you know, you make sure all the bills are in order, your desk is in order, there's not a messy desk. It's like, I don't like any dirty, I don't want clean laundry unfolded or not put away. When I go on a trip, I mean, it is like this. Everything is in order as if I'm never coming back. When Jennifer and I were traveling together a couple times to Florida, we had to look out for our dogs, Fitz and Lucy. Sam and Joanna came and took care of the dogs. Jake and Lee helped out with the dogs. Our son Timmy helped out. We had a schedule of who would take care of the dogs for two and a half weeks, right, Sam? We had a schedule. Hey, Fitz and Lucy, they get fed at this time. These are their treats. This is the deal. They like this about this much turkey burger. They'll never complain if you give them too much. You know, like that kind of a thing. So this is the dogs. This is the way it works. And we're, we're setting things in order. I used to always tell Jennifer, if I was going to trip, listen, I'll be back in, you know, it's 10 days, two weeks, whatever, the Chilean surf team, U.S. surf team, like, hey, this is this, the bills are all paid, everything's good, everything's in order, and, you know, and this and that. I, I would, you don't leave un, unpaid bills behind when you're leave, going on a trip, you don't let them go into default or be late, you, you don't do that. You don't leave dirty, you don't leave unfinished laundry, you don't leave them in the washing machine and not put in the dryer and dry it and fold it and put away. You don't do that. You set those things in order. That's what you do when you're going on a trip. You call and say, hey, activate the credit card. We're going to be in Florida for 10 days. So when you see activity, you set things in order. You put things in motion for where you're going and you have things in motion for what's going to, what you're leaving behind. Well, going to eternity is like that. I don't so much, when I go on a trip, like I'm going next week by myself, I'm not setting things in order necessarily for when I come back. I'm setting things in order for who I'm leaving behind, my wife and the house, or when Jennifer and I were traveling, the dogs. 
Sam's going to be there at 5. Leah's going to be there at 10 in the morning. And it's set in order. It's for what's left behind. It's not for me on the trip. It's for who's left behind. And that's the idea. Ahithophel, who had great counsel, David's great counselor, he turned against the Lord and against David. But when he realized his counsel was defeated, it says he went home. And what did he do before he took his life? He set his house in order. That same phrase was used. In it, and it was a negative context, of course. But he was, he was a smart guy, and he stepped in the attorney. So before he took his life, he put everything in order for the wife, the kids, the estate, and all that kind of stuff. So when we think about this first thing, it really is more practical and physical and temporal and for others than any other element of this story. And it's a reality that people are left behind. When I travel, when you travel, people are left behind and things need to be done. And eventually you'll travel and never come back. It's a one-way flight to eternity and no one comes back. Back in the 70s, the older people, remember, we'd go to the airport and there at San Diego Airport, you go right to the gate with your loved ones. They're boarding the flight and you're like, you're in the gate with them. You're right there. You, you don't do that anymore. Right now you're going through security like TSA. You're like, see you guys. You're going up at LAX. But back in the day, you go right to the gate and you'd be like, you know, all you need is a song. I'm leaving on a jet plane with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and you just close the deal, right? My bags are packed and ready to go. It's just like, there it is. You want to cry. You're saying goodbye. You're never coming back. That's a one-way flight. And before you turn around and say goodbye to the people you love, you want to set things in order. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. I'm not going to dwell on this too long, but just remember this. There are people that you're leaving behind. So when you're leaving people behind and you're setting things in order, first, the one thing you're going to always pass on to your loved ones is the legacy of your faith. It says in Psalm 145, verse 4, that one generation shall proclaim your praises to the next generation. And we understand from the law of God in the Old Testament with Israel to the teachings of the New Testament to honor your father and mother to tramp a child in the way it should go, that there's the generational legacy of faith. So when we step into eternity and we leave loved ones behind, we want to make sure that we've left them with a sure foundation of faith in the person and the work and the promises of Jesus Christ and the assurance of his word for their life. As he has been faithful in my life and my wife's life for almost 35 years of marriage, so too we know he'll be faithful in our children's lives and our children's children's lives and so on and so forth. So of course the number one thing we set in order is that our faith spiritually has been passed on but again, the context really is practical. So I think more of what Solomon would say, who's so practical. In Proverbs 13, he says, a righteous man is an inheritance to his children's children. So two generations, there's a blessing. It is interesting, the nation of Israel, everything anyone ever had, like Naboth and his vineyard that we saw Ahab steal from him, was something they received from the Lord. The amazing thing about Israel and the promised land is no one... Like the land each family had, like Naboth's vineyard, they received as an inheritance from the Lord. When Joshua went into the land, then they conquered the land and they cast lots. And the Lord determined which tribe, Naphtali, Zebulun, up here, Judah down there, Simeon over there, Gad up there. And in those households of all those people, in the census, they, they, they didn't get a job and go buy their land like we do. Every piece of real estate in Israel, in the Old Testament, for the nation of Israel, was received inheritance. And then it was passed on as an inheritance. And so with Naboth's vineyard, when Ahab says, I want your vineyard, Naboth's like, it's not, it's not your vineyard. God gave it to my parents. And God gave it to me. I've taken good care of this vineyard. You just can't take it because you're the king. And Ahab was like, well, yes, I can. And Jezebel was like, yes, he can. So they kill Naboth, and they take his vineyard. But in the end, they, 
Ahab and Jezebel both are struck down by the Lord for what they did with Naboth's vineyard. Of all the evil they did, it was stealing the wealth of Naboth's vineyard that belonged to him and belonged to his children and his children's children. That's important in understanding the Old Testament. So when we think about setting your house in order, we realize there is a practicality. In 34 years of ministry, almost 35, so often I've been pulled into situations where people stepped into eternity and the people they left behind were left with a lot of junk, a lot of clutter, and a lot of confusion over what to do. And when your loved ones moved on, it's, it's grievous. And there's so much grief when it is in order and it's overwhelming when there's not order. It's very hard to see people who profess faith and confess faith in the Lord, who had some wealth but didn't manage it, didn't clarify it, didn't communicate it, step into eternity and leave a disaster for their loved ones behind that no one can straighten out except lawyers who end up taking it all. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our church YouTube channel. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. For more information about Pastor Joey personally, you can follow him on his Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and God bless.